Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. Joe, it is uh, it is June. It is hot in North Carolina. We should be going to Omaha this week. Instead, we are not. We are we are just talking about the draft. That's what we got this year. I don't even really want to talk about Omaha and like what we would be doing normally this week. So. Uh, I, I think mostly we're, we're just going to focus on the draft and uh, these recruiting rankings that I put out last week uh, uh, here on the podcast. But if, if you want to like acknowledge that super regionals were supposed to be held last weekend and we we're supposed to be getting on the plane to go to Omaha this week, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll allow you to do so. Yeah, it, it, I hadn't really thought about it, but man, you want to talk about the potential for an extremely hectic and busy day, like flying into Omaha like while the draft is going on. And I suppose, you know, we hadn't booked flights or anything. I suppose maybe that would have been a part I of the I still have decided whether I wanted to go like on Wednesday to see the first round or like, and therefore spend an extra day in Omaha or like stay, like stay home for another day. And then this part of the draft Thursday, potentially uh, in, in transit. And yeah. Those decisions are made for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, as, as, as stressful as that decision making process might have been, we are left with the, with the worst alternative, which is, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, we're just, we're just all at home, but it is kind of nice to have certainly this week to have the draft to, to engage with, uh, to, to continue a, a trope I've seen on Twitter. Uh, the draft is back. Nature is healing. We are, we are looking at uh, these draft prospects and it will, it will feel, I mean, it's going to be very different with just a, a five round draft, but the mechanics of it are going to be the same. You know, we're, we're going to you know, watch, watch the draft happen. And, and obviously the guys on the pro side are going to talk about how that affects these organizations. And then you and I will talk about it from the standpoint of how it affects the college game. And, and that will all be very normal and that will be nice. And when you combine that with, you know, I mean, it, it's going to be a weird summer, but you combine that with, we're starting to see movement in summer ball, whether that's, some leagues like not too far from us here, the coastal plain league is going to get going later this month. And um, you know, there's leagues popping up kind of in places where leagues got canceled. There's, there's one in the Midwest that's being played exclusively in normal Illinois, which is, which is interesting. Um, There have been other examples of this all around the country of of leagues just kind of filling in a vacuum. Uh, So we're, we're starting to get baseball from a collegiate standpoint in little fits and starts here. And, and that's kind of been nice as well as we get back to, to something resembling baseball normalcy. And in a couple weeks from now, like I've been saying from the very beginning of this, a couple weeks from now, we will no longer be in a place where we can look back and say, well, if, if in a normal year, we'd be doing X or Y at this time in the season, pretty soon it'll just be a normal off season. And I suspect that will make it a little bit easier. Yeah. Except then I'll think about why I'm not going to the Cape. Um... Well, that's, I mean, that's a good point <laughs> from, from your standpoint. That is, that is absolutely true. But no, from a fan standpoint, once we uh, once we clear Omaha, you know, then it's uh, then it's just a normal off season at that point, uh, except with uh, a lot of different uh, you know quirks uh, and, and challenges to to navigate this year. As uh, you know, teams try and figure out uh, the roster balance, and, um, later signing deadline, five round draft, and, and and players coming back, and and all the rest of that. But We'll, we'll leave that for another day. One thing I will say about uh, it being Super Regionals weekend is as we record this on Monday, this is actually the one-year anniversary of Kumar Rocker's Super Regional no-hitter. 
which also coincides with the anniversary of um, you know LSU walking off Miami. You might have seen that game on ESPN at some point in the last couple of months. They've been showing it a fair uh, a fair amount. I didn't realize those two things happened on the same day. I guess because you know we were so busy last year during Super Regionals and you know Kumar's thing was happening very late at night um, when it was finishing up. Like it, it wasn't really a time to think about what was going on in 1996. But you know to two all-time college baseball moments uh, on happened on June 8th. So that's a, it's a pretty cool day in college baseball history. Yeah, no doubt. That, that might've been one of the, I don't, I don't have a, you know, I wasn't time stamping every single thing I turned in last year, but writing up the Kumar rocker game, which I wasn't there. Dave was there though. I remember Dave was there and having, you know, calling Dave after the game and, you know, we were kind of teaming up on, story ideas and because I was writing that game up when it be especially you know I was planning on doing it but it because the game was so late it it was one of those games where I think I was focused on maybe other things like wrapping up some of the previous results during the day and so it was one of those games where I kind of looked up and was like oh wow here we go and so I didn't really get started on writing it up and you also there was the real possibility that Duke scores three, four, five, six runs in the last couple innings, and well, suddenly that story's not the story anymore, so you kind of have to wait that out, and it might have been the latest I turned something in last year just because there was, that it happened, and then once it happened, you, you kind of get sucked into the fallout of, I was watching video on Twitter of the post-game press conferences, and then was, the ESPNU was doing kind of live hits from the stadium it became like a bigger story than it would have been otherwise so I kind of got sucked into that for an hour or so and then before I really ever sat down and started started writing on it and um you know I know you're someone who who tends to have a little more nocturnal sensibilities in terms of getting things written and turned in I especially this time last year because I was working a day job I really didn't have the luxury of being able to to turn my days upside down like that but uh, that was that might have been the latest I turned something yet. I don't remember any what time it, it was, but it was uh, pretty late because I, I seem to remember that was a rain delayed game or, or some such. I don't know why it would have started such so late locally otherwise, but it was... I, I think I it was just that they needed things to start late. Yeah, it might have just been the window they had. Yeah, that, that very well could be. So, um, yeah, incredible that, that um, those two things happened on the same day. You and I have had this conversation offline, but we've been a little bit... You know, we, I, I understand... I, trying to measure my words here, but like, I understand that it's not so simple for these networks to just slap on whatever game they want to show on a given day. There, there, I'm sure there are complicated rights agree, agreements that go into these things. Um, and, and there are certain games that I want to see that I know because of my viewpoint, a lot of other people wouldn't care about. Like my tastes are very different than your average college baseball consumer's taste. They're very different even from your taste. That's just, that's the beauty of it. That's the way it works. That being said, I think we could all agree that we would like to see that again. You know, I would really like to watch that from the beginning because I don't know that I really, because it was the super regional round and because we're a week away from Omaha, I don't really know that I had a chance to, to really go back and relive that in, in the way I would have if that had happened, something similar had happened um, during the regular season, even though the fact that it was in a super regional made it a bigger event. But I mean, that's the type of game that I can't, I can't believe we haven't seen that, whether it's on ESPN or whether it's, you know, one of those games that the NCAA uh, put on Facebook or Twitter or however they've been showing those or that the Vanderbilt baseball account has put on. It's just hard to imagine that that's a game we haven't seen this offseason. 
Yeah, I um, I sincerely don't know what's up with that. Again, as we record this on Monday, June eight, like ESPNU has college baseball on all day and into the night. Uh, the SEC Network had a game this morning, so there's basically been baseball, or there will be baseball on the ESPN family of networks for 15 hours today, I think, and it's just a bunch of college world series games meanwhile like you have this game that would be really cool to see uh not not being shown they are showing the lsu walk off so like at least they do have the uh the feel to put that on but again uh it's not like that's the first time that that's been shown in the last couple uh months but yeah i eventually maybe we'll get this this kumar rocker no hitter uh to to look back on 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 tv it was you know i i didn't actually see hardly any of it i don't think because i was uh in starkville covering that super regional and that was also a late night in starkville because of rain and so maybe nashville was dealing with similar thunderstorms but i kind of think they were just starting late because they were taking advantage of nashville being in the central time zone um and yeah, so I, I was busy doing a lot of stuff then, not watching Kumar, but you know, when you, you can't help but to to see what he's doing. And uh it was it was incredible to to see him, you know, put up you know, a no hitter in an elimination game for Vanderbilt. And you know, also he struck out nineteen and it didn't feel like at any time, at least late in the game, that Duke was particularly close to him. You know, they're close to, to figuring anything out against him. He uh, he was just absolutely superb that night. So hopefully we get to see more uh, more of that from, from Kumar soon. I guess probably next season at this point. But uh, a fun a fun game from last year's super regional round to uh, to look back at to look back on. Now Kumar Rocker is the number one prospect in the 2021 draft, but we're here to talk about the 2020 draft, which begins on Wednesday. You can watch the first round on Wednesday night. It starts at 7 o'clock Eastern time uh, on MLB Network. They're also showing it on ESPN, uh, but our Carlos Colazo will be on MLB Network, uh, so we endorse watching Carlos um, you know, talk about uh, the, the, the draft as it un- unfolds there. Uh, and then rounds two through five are on Thursday. That begins at five o'clock Eastern. The draft, as you may have heard, is expected to be very college heavy, especially uh, in the first round, but really throughout because it's only five rounds this year. The expectation is that it's going to, a lot of teams are going to opt for the you know, knowns of college players. They actually got to see college players play games this year, whereas a lot of high school players never really got their seasons underway. College players did. And so they do have some new fresh looks and they also just have a lot more to fall back on uh, because of, you know, the track records that they can look at uh, on video and stats, scouting looks from the summer and and last spring and and all the rest of it. So there's an expectation there are going to be a lot of college players taken, but also this college draft class is just very strong. You can read more about all of that over at baseballamerica.com. In a lot of our draft coverage, you can check out the BA 500 scouting reports there as well. And leading the 500, 
that's the 500 best draft players or draft eligible players uh, is Spencer Torkelson, Arizona State first baseman. Spencer Torkelson, Austin Martin is number two. Azel Lacy, uh, A&M, the left-hander, is number three. Those are kind of the three players expected to be in the mix uh, for the Tigers who are picking first. Torkelson is definitely the, the favorite to be selected first overall. Uh, I wrote about him and how he handled the season cancellation and, and his draft prep and uh, just all of that for the, the most recent issue, uh, which uh, I was told by, by, my, uh, by my mother recently arrived. Uh, there were some delays with the mail, but it is uh, hopefully all of our subscribers have been able to, to get their hands on that issue. It's, uh, there, there's just a lot of really good draft content in there in, in one place if you prefer the, uh, the magazine format. So, Joe, it's going to be interesting to see how all of that comes together at the top of the draft. I guess from from what you've seen from those guys, uh, is there is there a way you would lean if you were making the Tigers pick? You know, I earlier in the season, I think we've had had a similar conversation. I was really big on the Austin Martin train, just because I really like I really like the versatility that's there. I really like the varied skill set that he brings to the table. Also, part of it, admittedly, this really isn't fair to him, but I think part of why I was bullish on him was that a lot of things I had heard leading up to the season were that, you know, this, he's a player that could, and we saw this in Omaha last year when he, when he, I think he had four home runs in Omaha last season. And then another one in the super regionals, like half his home runs came in the last few weeks of the season was that, you know, he's a guy who could make a JJ Blade like leap from a power standpoint, because let's not forget JJ Blade's power numbers weren't all that impressive until his junior season when he went crazy. And so I think I was kind of buying that a little bit. And then, of course, the season happens, and not only does, does Austin Martin end up, you know, uh, tw- you know getting a, a small injury towards the end of the year. When I was in, out in L.A., he had missed a couple of games, and then, but then the season got canceled. And so he never really had an opportunity to, um, to prove that one way or the other. So that's not, again, that's not really necessarily fair to him. But I think for that reason, and also just that I've come around to the idea that you know, Austin Martin does give you some things that Spencer Torkelson doesn't, but are those things that he gives you, whether it's the defensive versatility, if you think he could handle a premium position as a shortstop or, or perhaps a center fielder, is he going to be so good at those positions that it out um, that it outpaces what Torkelson is going to give you as a very polished power bat that you feel like you can plug into your, you know, big league lineup 18 months from now? Um, does, does, does what Martin give you from a versatility standpoint and an athleticism standpoint outweigh that? And now I'm not so sure. Um, I've kind of come around to the other way of thinking. I just think Torkelson is such a, you hate to say sure thing, but he's just such a known known in terms of what he's going to bring and what type of player he is. And the track record is so strong that for me, I think it would be hard to overlook the ability to just be able to grab him and feel pretty good that in a couple of years, he's going to be in the middle of your order. Yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely in on Torkelson as the as the top pick. Just think he brings so much impact with the bat, and he plays first base for Arizona State, but he doesn't have to be a first baseman only. He played outfield in Cape Cod League. He did it fine. There's, I don't think, any reason to believe he can't go back out to the outfield if that is what uh, the team that drafts him prefers. I don't think 
you know, I, I've seen some comparisons to Pete Alonso that kind of seems to be the popular comparison floating around right now. And I really, uh, you know, would note that Torkelson's a lot more athletic than Alonso was in college. I can't really speak to what Alonso has become athletically. I cannot say that I watch a ton of Mets games, but, you know, in college, Alonso, you know, yeah, he dealt with some injuries. So, you know, that impacted it. But Torkelson, you know, has history in the outfield that Alonzo didn't uh, when he was at Florida. And, you know, so I, I wouldn't be concerned about, you know, Torkelson being stuck at first base. I look at him more like Chris Bryant. Um, they're like the most productive power hitters of the last decade. And, you know, there were, at the time that Bryant was coming out, there were a lot of questions about whether Chris Bryant could stay at third base. There was there was a school of thought that thought he was headed to first base or the outfield. Now, obviously, Bryant has mostly stayed at third base for the Cubs, uh, but I, I would that that's that's not a perfect comparison either. Bryant had a lot more swing and miss than Torkelson does, which is another reason why I like Torkelson so much. Just the back control is is so impressive and, and he just does such a good job at, at squaring up balls and driving them a really long way. And I don't know, to me that it's everything you could ask for, you know, first overall pick, except maybe that he doesn't play a premium position. And so I understand that Austin Martin could do that. He can run around center field for you. And depending on your view on third base as a premium position, he can do that. But I don't think he's a shortstop. Vanderbilt's never tried him there. Um, you know, and maybe he could handle it in a pinch. But for the most part, you know, if you aren't playing shortstop in college, you're probably not going to suddenly take it up in pro ball and do it well. So, you know, if you're, if you're someone that doesn't care that much about shortstop defense, because, you know, you just believe in shifting and uh, there are definitely teams like that out there. Paul Dion is, I, I would have said similar things about Paul Dion coming out of college he is now playing mostly shortstop for the Cardinals. So, you know, it can be done, but if you're a team that, that doesn't play like that or that is concerned about what rules might change with regards to shifting, then, you know, I wouldn't be looking at Martin as a shortstop. He's so good in center field and at third base that I, I'd just be happy with that. And, you know, if you end up with Austin Martin in this draft, he, it's an outstanding player. He hit 400 in the SEC. I mean, you can't say enough about you know, his back control and, and what he does athletically. But, you know, when it comes to Torkelson and, and the power that he would bring to the lineup, that is, that is definitely the way I would go. You know, I wrote about them both uh, this year. They're both very driven. They both really work at it. Um, they're both really good uh, in terms of like leadership and how, how much their teammates like them and respect them and all the rest of that. They're, they're absolutely potential cornerstone pieces uh, and whether wh- whoever drafts them, you know, this week is they're, they're going to be getting outstanding players. I would say it's interesting that you talk about you know the idea that Paul DeYoung is a, a player who can be passable at, at shortstop now when you wouldn't have thought that, and and that maybe is the argument for Austin Martin being able to to play a little shortstop at the next level. But it's also kind of the argument for why Spencer Torkelson. You you don't have to just think of them as a first baseman. As you know, who's to say? With teams doing what they're doing, and you would know better than I, I'm certainly not going to claim to be any sort of expert on, on the way teams are thinking about this kind of stuff. I'm not, not well-versed in that necessarily. But it stands to reason that 
you know, it's a lot of the same reasons why you think Torkelson, even already a good athlete who could handle the outfield, could, could really become a good outfielder just because teams are so good at kind of taking, okay, we want this guy's bat and lineup. Now let's figure out how to optimize our lineup. And if that involves Spencer Torkelson playing the outfield, we're going to figure out how to make that work. And, you know, so I think that's, that's as much an argument as anything else, I think, too, for Torkelson just not having to be a first baseman. And, and crucially, I think we're also living in a post in a, in a post um, bias world against those types of players, even if you were confident that he was just a first baseman, is that, look, that bat's going to, that bat's going to force his way into the lineup one way or the other. And if that has to be at first base, it has to be at first base. Whereas, you know, if this was, if this draft was 15 years ago and this, now I'm really out of my depth here, but I would assume if this draft was 15 or so years ago, like Austin Martin's the type of player that would be the first overall pick in that type of draft, just because we hadn't quite gotten there as a, as a baseball culture yet. You know, honestly, I think that it might be one of the pitchers if it were, 15 years ago yeah that's I a good think point. that I, I think that if you go back that far there would have been concerns about like well why does Austin Martin keep changing positions does does he not have a position like he doesn't really look like a third baseman you know he doesn't doesn't hit. you're projecting on the power maybe it's in there maybe it's not but you know okay he's a center fielder like I can buy that you know he's athletic he runs well um but at the same time, like, why did Vanderbilt take two years to put him there? Like, I think there would be a lot of questions about things like that. Whereas, you know, the arms, there was definitely just a belief that, you know, college pitching was the safe pick. That that still exists today, but uh, I think it was maybe a little more prevalent. Whereas now hitters are getting pushed up the board a little more uh, in part because, they're hard to find and you know there's a lot of concern about how the pitchers will you know what their durability will be and you know so oftentimes you you see hitters kind of as as the you know teams want to be giving them maybe the benefit of the doubt and you know so I, i i wonder if uh you know maybe it would have been martin I, I definitely think it would have been – you would have heard a lot less about Torkelson for the first overall pick. There would have been a lot of acknowledgement about, like, how good he was as a player. But, you know, for the first overall pick, it would have been a lot of probably Lacey, you know, maybe Hancock and uh, and Martin. And Han- uh, a Lacey, you know, is is still in the mix. You know, this, this lefty that – throws gas uh, and, and has quite the track record. And, and Joe, you were, you talked to him for the issue. What, um, what'd you learn about Azel Lacey? I really learned how much of a unfinished product he was for large swaths of his, his college career. Now we're talking degrees, right? If, if Asa Lacey had arrived, not at Texas A&M or another high level SEC program, but you know, a program in some smaller conference, or, you know, even a quality mid-major conference, or just a, a less successful program in a major conference, like, he would have very much looked like a finished product from the very beginning, because he, he put it right at the front of the rotation, and probably would have had success, and the numbers would have been there, and the stuff would have been there, at least as, as far as fastball changeup goes. That stuff would have all been there, and it would have looked that way. But, you know, on that scale, when you go to a place like Texas A&M, you know, when he arrived, they had John Doxakis ahead of him, and Mitchell Kilkenny ahead of him. And this is a program that just churns out, you know, I saw a, a graphic they put out on Twitter, Texas A&M did, and just the, 
the sheer volume of pitchers they've had drafted in the, in the top five rounds in recent years is, is staggering. Guys you, you've forgotten about, frankly. Um, who, who, you know, maybe it was because they were a junior college transfer or maybe it was because they, they really took time to develop over time. Guys you had kind of forgotten about. And he's obviously chief among them in that lineage now. But, you know, when he got to campus, you know, talked to Rob Childress a little bit about how he was just kind of a two-pitch guy. And those two pitches were, were extremely effective. I mean, his first season on campus, he was primarily a reliever and threw 40 or so innings and opponents were hitting 200 against him. And Strikeout rate was good, but it was it was a lot of fastball changeup. And as a reliever, you can you could do that. But those two pitches are, are really really good. And he had a couple of breaking balls, but they weren't you know really anything to write home about. So you know he goes to Alaska that off season, starts working you know on a on a knuckle curve. And it, it what was interesting to me too is is talking to to Childress and to to Lacey himself. They both echoed this thing, the same thing where it just goes to show that pitching is, is a little bit art and a little bit science where he goes to summer ball in Alaska between his freshman and sophomore years. And really like his primary goal there is I need a third pitch. And so he works with, with Jeff Erlaub who, you know, pitched at Arizona state, UNLV grand Canyon as a, as a college pitcher, another lefty. And they, he taught him a knuckle curveball, And it was like, it was there. Boom. All right. Third pitch. I've got a third pitch. And then he goes back to A&M to start his sophomore season. It's the fall before his sophomore season. And the slider is just not there. Like it's just not clicking. And like suddenly he shows back up from Christmas break. And, and, and I'm sure it wasn't quite this simple, but he sure made it sound that way that he comes back from Christmas break and all of a sudden, voila, the slider's there too, uh, with real, very little warning. And so it goes to show that, you know, one of those, one of those, those breaking balls that the knuckle curve, he worked at and he kind of worked at and worked at and worked at and presumably there was a progression while he was in Alaska and he, he got it down and the slider just wasn't there until it was. And so now he's a four pitch guy. And that's part of the reason he's in the mix, at least on the periphery, you know, as a top overall pick, but more likely second or third and uh, why he is where he is. But, you know, he, he even said, look, even last year, you look at the numbers last year and they're extremely good. But even that, he was saying, yeah, my, my repertoire was polished and it was there. But, you know, there were a lot of games there where he'd pitch five and change or six innings and strike out 10 or 12, but he was done because his pitch count was at 95 or 105 and it was just time for him to go. And so going into this year, his big thing was, you know, how can I dominate but be more efficient about it? And we never really kind of got to see that. It would have been interesting to see, although we got little tastes. Um, you know, he, his last start of the season was against New Mexico State and Nick Gonzalez. And that's even beyond Nick Gonzalez, a pretty good offensive club. And, and he really carved them up and was looking a lot more efficient. And so we got little hints there, but obviously we, we didn't get to see it against SEC competition, which would have been the biggest test. But there's a really interesting story about a guy who just meticulously, you know, I heard a lot of things that I'm sure you heard when you talk to people about Torkelson or in the past, when you talk to people about Austin Martin is that, Oh, you know, he just, he wants to be great. And the quote Childers said was every day when his feet hit the floor, he wants to be great. And you hear that a lot about these really high level prospects. Um, but I thought it was interesting that you could see it in practice with Lacey. You know, he felt he was an incomplete pitcher. So he attacked it. He, 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 he has improved his repertoire. Then it was, he needed to improve how efficient he was. So he started working towards that. And to me, that's the difference. I think there are a lot of people that say they want to be great. Maybe they even put in some of the hard work to do it, but it's not focused hard work. But Asa Lacey, it was focused hard work, and that's kind of how you end up with this pitcher. Yeah, he uh, he's definitely the latest and just an incredible lineage of AM arms. And he 
has a good chance to be the best. You know, the what he does, AM has a lot of like really good, solid pitchers, but he has a chance maybe to to be more than that. To, you know, again, lefty throwing 97. There aren't that many of those out there. And I know it's kind of a different world in 2020, given, you know, what what velocity can happen now versus just 10 years ago even. But he's he's pretty special, and, and there's a reason why he's become, you know, the top pitcher in the draft class passing Emerson Hancock along the way. Um, not that Hancock has really done anything particularly wrong. He had a bit of a slow start, at least relative to – you know, some of the other guys, but he's, he's a really special pitcher himself. You know, the, the top of this draft class is just very impressive. And a lot of these guys, you know, really those four probably in any other year or in any year could, could be in the mix to go first overall. Um, you know, and Nick Gonzalez is hanging out there too. And I, I just don't know that, you know, we talked about draft biases. I don't know that there's a year where Nick Gonzalez can overcome the short second baseman at New Mexico state bias. <laughs> like there's a, you know, we talked to, talked with Brian Green last week about, you know, just how much time, uh, you know, it, it would take for people to, to understand how good Nick Gonzalez is. And I'm not saying that, you know, we don't at this point, but there, uh, there's still a lot going against him when, when you start tr- stacking up draft prospects um, that getting him to be a first overall pick might, might be tricky, but, uh, you know, he's, he's going to go probably in the top five to seven picks himself and, uh, is going to be a a fantastic pick for, for whatever team, uh, team makes that call. So we're going to get to see that all play out on Wednesday night. It'll be interesting to see how teams attack the top of this draft. Uh, and really the entirety of the draft, because again, it is just five rounds. That's down from the typical 40, and a lot goes along with that, you know, it just being a five-round draft. And for college baseball, probably the most significant thing is that I guess about a 1,000 players that are typically drafted, or at least drafted and signed, are now not going to be. And they're... uh, that that creates a log jam in college and we've talked about this a lot before but you know this is a big part of it is is not just high school kids showing up in in greater numbers than than you might expect it it's kids who are juniors who don't get drafted and then have to consider whether uh you know they might get a free agent deal or not who then come back and you know it's it's seniors who you know, you ordinarily would expect they're gone because their eligibility is up, but now this year they have an extra year. And so all of that coming together uh, makes it very difficult for college coaches. And they have been trying to get some extra roster relief. You know, we know that there is some roster relief out there uh, for them in terms of, you know, seniors not counting to the roster caps. They've been asking for a little bit more. They've been asking for, uh, you know, the number of, of countable scholarship players to increase from 27 to 32 for, you know, totally uncapped rosters. There's also a proposal out there that would add a couple scholarships, um, you know, allowing teams to go past 11.7. There's really still been no clarity from the NCAA on, on that. 
there's just been no movement on, on that. So right now college coaches are kind of going into this, you know, a little blind, but I, I would also say that if the NCAA hasn't ruled by now, um, you know, if they don't get it done before the draft, I, I don't know how much emphasis there's going to be post draft. Uh, so that they're, they're trying to work through all of these things, but the, uh, the, the rules as they are, as they stand now, are, are accommodating for seniors and not so much for the idea that there might be extra freshmen uh, showing up. So we'll, we'll see how that all comes to a head. But a five-round draft, there's just going to be a lot of, of trickle-down effects for that within college baseball. Yeah, we're, it's kind of the second phase of a multi-phase process we're in here we're, we're kind of getting used to talking this way because we talked about different cities and states in phase one phase two and so on with with coronavirus and things opening back up and they're kind of a, a phase thing with with the draft here too where you know the first phase was what kind of eligibility relief are are is the NCAA going to grant and what does that kind of mean moving forward what is the, my individual from the coach's standpoint, what is my individual school going to an athletic department going to allow me to do money wise, even if, you know, even uh, based on what the NCAA says, will I be able to do that? And then that was kind of phase one. There was some clarity there. And now we're moving into phase two where it's like, okay, if you're, if you're Rob Childress, you know, Asa Lacey is, is getting drafted, but for players that are a little more on the fringe, they've kind of been in this, this holding pattern and, there's a lot of uncertainty about that. So this phase will be, okay, which players got drafted? Because chances are, if you've gotten drafted in a five-round draft, you're going. You're, you're going to sign. And so I think that will provide a lot of clarity in terms of, of, of which players will certainly be gone from, from some of these schools that have multiple players in the balance. And then the third phase won't happen until later in the summer when we get closer to the signing deadline where then you start to see, okay, which guys – who maybe were juniors coming into the year who were just dead set on this is, you know, I'm going to do what I can to put myself in position to get drafted and signed. Maybe some of those guys get a little bit itchy and want to go move on and which seniors think, well, I, I wasn't going to get more than $20,000 as a senior sign anyway. So I'm going to go ahead and, and forego my last year of school. I've graduated or I'm just tired of school or, or whatever it is and, and move on. And, and that will, that third phase will not come until later this summer, but th- this will, that this week will at least provide a little more clarity on that front and allow coaches to, to continue to put that puzzle together. Yeah. I think that's going to be one of the best things about this week is there, there is going to be a little more clarity after it, you know, best things aside from the kids getting drafted who see their dreams come true, obviously. Uh, but you know, th- there's just been so much uncertainty about what this draft will look like. And at the end of this week, we'll know. The signing deadline isn't until August 1st this year. So you are going to have the potential for some players to take a while to sign. I doubt that that will happen too much. I I don't envision a whole lot of drafted players taking that to the deadline. Now, non-drafted free agents potentially could. Uh, And there are a lot of rules with the non-drafted free agents this year, or the the rules are restrictive with them in that they can only – you know, receive $20,000 bonuses max. And that is obviously not a small chunk of change um, to, to you or, or, or to me, or at least to me, I don't, I don't, don't want to speak for you, but to me, you know, 20K is not, not nothing, but you nice. know, when you're talking, yeah, I mean, but, but when we're talking about draft bonuses, kind of is, 
Um, you know, that they're it, compared to what you might have thought you were getting if you thought you were an eighth round pick, uh, you were probably going to get more than $20,000. So some people really are going to, you know, it's, it's just going to be very interesting to see how, how that whole thing plays out. And it's also going to be interesting from a team side how many players they're looking to sign to as non-drafted free agents. You know, we've seen a lot of, you know, there are not a lot of people out there that are particularly optimistic about there being a minor league season. Um, you know, so how many teams are really going to be trying to load up on non-drafted free agents if there's not going to be a minor league season this year. I'm sure that there will be teams that see this as an opportunity and will try and sign as many of the best ones as they possibly can. But, you know, we also saw, um, you know, and the A's have now reversed this, but the A's were trying to not pay their minor leaguers after the end of May. And the Nationals were trying to cut the, the, the minor leaguer stipend by 25%. Again, both of those things have been reversed now. And, um, you know, all of the minor leaguers are, are going to continue to be paid. But if those are the decisions you're looking at, you know, you just wonder, A, are players going to want to join clubs where that's been a thing that's happened in the last few weeks? And then B, are those clubs even going to be all that interested in adding talent adding players to their already, you know, th this collection of minor leaguers that they already have that currently aren't playing. So I don't know, the, the non-drafted market is going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds. Also, you know, whereas after the draft ends in a typical year, uh, you know, if you're a senior in college, you have no more options. You can't go back. Well, this year, everyone has another year of eligibility, no matter whether we're talking about you coming out of junior college or high school or college, you have another year of, of eligibility as an amateur if you want it. And, you know, so are, are, are some seniors still just going to be ready to go? Or are they going to be content with, uh, with that $20,000 signing bonus or less, you know, a, a signing bonus less than 20 K? Uh, you know, that's really going to be interesting. Free agency doesn't start until Sunday. Uh, so we are going to have to wait a little longer for that kind of clarity. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it's obviously a very big week in terms of just really getting a feel for what college baseball rosters are going to look like in 2021. Yeah. And uh, just quickly on this, my last thing on this, I know we've, we've got other ground to cover, but that's, that's kind of what's fascinating to me is there are just so many variables at play here when it comes to the undrafted market, because it's, you know, it, it's, you, you know, the, 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 the boundary, it's $20,000 and um, that that's the max. And, but beyond that, everything is in play. You, you mentioned, we don't know how many players teams are going to be looking to sign. I think they might run the gamut there just because any player that gives you any sort of value is going to be worth $20,000 signing bonus wise. So, I mean, those are like just lottery tickets essentially, but then from the player side, it's, you know, in some ways, if you're a, productive player at a, at a visible program, like given what's going on in minor league baseball that you alluded to, I mean, if I were in their shoes, that might almost incentivize me to just go back and say, look, I, I've kind of proven what I need to prove and I'm just going to go back and play another year and do that again next year. And if, if that, if that player is, is uh, introspective and is able to understand what kind of prospect they are, if they're not an elite prospect, like, you know, I'm, 
you know, I can go back and play another year and, um, you know, on at least partial scholarship and then do what I've done my entire career and I'll get my chance to play my, my minor league baseball here in a year. But beyond that, I mean, it's also, you know, if you're a kid who, who is in a, had a pretty good scholarship situation and there's no minor league baseball and, and teams are talking about, you know, trying to find ways not to pay their minor league players, even if they've gone back on that, that's not a super hospitable situation. And if I'm in a situation, whether it's on the baseball scholarship side or the academic scholarship side, if you're in a cushy position where you could come back to school for, for very little out of pocket money, and that's a pretty tempting option. Those are all variables that we, you and I do not know and will not know. And we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. And I think that's to your point, what makes this so fascinating is there's a whole lot of variables we can't see that are playing into this, that we're just going to have to try to reverse engineer once it all happens. Yeah. There's, um, there's that whole other financial side. We've definitely talked about this before with regards to seniors and the decisions they have to make, but they are going to have to, you know, if you've graduated, you've got to, you know, go start a master's. If you, even if you haven't graduated, um, you know, you're, you still, you know, maybe you were on track to graduate in December and now you'd be looking at taking on, you know, another semester or, or whatever. There, there's a lot there in terms of these financial decisions beyond just deciding, do I want to take this signing bonus as a non-drafted free agent or not? And then there are also, you know, will there be high school kids that, that take that? Will there be junior college kids that take that? Um, you know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, there are definitely kids that just are ready to start their professional career, no matter what level we're talking about here. There, there are guys that just believe that they're ready for that and that's what they want. And, um, you know, they're ready to go at it. And, and so we'll, we'll find out about all of that. But that, those, are, those are probably the key things to watch uh, as, as the week unfolds. Now, this week in our top 25, Joe and I went back through and ranked the uh, – the best college players who have been picked first overall uh, throughout the draft history. There have been 26 of them. Somebody's going to become the 27th this week. Uh, so it made for a very convenient top 25. Uh, we cut Mark Appel off. Sorry, Mark Appel. Um, did not make the big leagues. Everyone else drafted first overall as a, uh, as a college player, with the exception of Casey Mize and Adley Rutschman, who are just beginning their their careers uh have reached the major league so that was a that was a pretty easy call to make we put a lot of emphasis on the uh on the professional career part of this uh but we did acknowledge them as as college players and in our calculus as well and uh david price winds up as your your best college player drafted first overall of course, he's had a very decorated career at Vanderbilt and, and has continued on doing that in, in pro ball. Steven Strasburg and, and Garrett Cole uh, following uh, closely behind him at, at numbers two and three there for us. Yeah, it was kind of amazing to me. I think the, I think the thing that I, that I took away from that is just how in and out of vogue the college player as a top draft pick has become. And some of that just depends on the players, right? If you've got a, a generational talent in college, then then that's – that player could be taken first overall and it doesn't necessarily have to say anything about the way teams view college talent and college players, but I think you can read a little bit into it. And this will be the third straight year that a college player is taken first overall. But, you know, before, before Mize, there were a couple of years where it wasn't a college player and then Dansby Swanson in 15, but then there were a few years before you get down to Garrett Cole. And there are these kind of huge chunks in time where they're, 
you have a few years where college players are very much in vogue and then a few years where it's, it's high school players in that top spot. And um, it, it was interesting to see the shifts there. And also just that the track record of position players was not nearly as successful as pitchers. And some of that is just that those, a lot of those pitchers are recent draft picks and have gone on to have very good careers, but a lot of the top drafted position players the ones that we had, I mean, there were some guys that had really pretty good peaks. Uh, you know, Phil Nevin comes to mind where he had like a really good peak in the late nineties with the Padres. I think maybe Darren Erstad gets underrated for how good his peak was because he played for so long. But for the most part, the top position players were guys who just played for a really long time and therefore accumulated numbers, guys like BJ Serhoff, for example. So that was interesting to me because I think I would have, without having stopped and really thought about it, like I think I would have assumed that there were some big name college number one overall draft picks on the position player side that, that have had the big impacts that some of these pitchers have. But no, it, it was really very heavily tilted on the mound. Yeah, I was also just kind of surprised when I went through and sorted by war um, that, you know, first of all, I was surprised that BJ Serhoff ranked second. I, I would not have expected that. But yeah, that, that some of the other, you know, prime uh position players like a nevin did not fare so well in those those rankings and we we adjusted it but you know you think of like phil nevin and pat pearl who had you know some nice seasons in there better than just nice seasons some, some really big seasons in there did not stack up quite as well and um you know say what you want about war you know it, it generally is doing a pretty good job of, of evaluating these things i think and um you know, it it, uh, it did definitely tilt more towards the pitchers. Although, like, I will say that if you just are looking at war, Garrett Cole ranks 10th right now. And obviously Garrett Cole is very early in his career still, uh, having only just been in the big leagues for like six years. But he's uh, he's accomplished an awful lot. And that, that's a big reason why we, or the reason why we, we ran him all the way up to three. But seeing those big arms at the top, seeing them all still be active, uh, you know, it, it is interesting as well. And it, it, it's interesting when you look back on draft history, uh, if you go much past, I guess, like the early 90s, you know, Ben McDonald, really, I guess, in, in 89, uh, the college player was probably not as highly thought of. And, you know, I, I think that's reflected both in the draft and, and in what their careers turned out to be. So, uh, not surprised that Skew's recent, and I think that you know the the recent picks of, of Mize and Rutschman are, are going to go on to you know have very successful careers as well. And if we did this again in ten years, I, I think that they would rank uh, pretty highly on the on the list ultimately. Yeah, and I think it it just speaks to teams just do a better job drafting these days. I mean, the hit rate is. Is, is higher than it than it was, and I think that's at all levels, not just in the, at the college side, but certainly on the college side. I think that that hit rate is um, is higher, and I think it has something to do with the quality of play across college baseball. I mean, they, there used to be a lot of adjustment going on to quality, you know, the, not just the, the the numbers itself, whether it was evaluating hitters in the days of Gorilla Ball or this pitcher for you know a guy like Brian Bullington pitching at Ball State. Um, shout out to your uh, Ball State Cardinals, but um, yeah, watch yourself here. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, you know, there was an adjustment you had to do for a Mac pitcher in 2002, and there would still be an adjustment for a Mac pitcher today, 
But I think the quality in college baseball has gotten to a point now where it has made it easier for teams to trust numbers and trust what they see and, and trust that, that, that the quality of competition is high enough that what they're seeing is not necessarily fraudulent. Yeah, all of that plays into it. And just generally the the investment in college baseball, like that happens, you know, in the 90s and, you know, carries through obviously in the 21st century, like that is also being reflected here that as college baseball becomes a bigger deal, as more programs invest and, and you know, get serious about it, you see uh, the prospects follow and, you know, you get to, to what you have today. And, um, you know, presumably we're going to see more growth in that area, hopefully. Um, you know, we'll see what the next decade brings. But uh, especially if, you know, the, the minor leagues are uh, contracted and, and more emphasis then gets placed on college baseball, hopefully it's able to step up to the challenge and, uh, you know, continuing funnel, continue to funnel, uh, you know, premium players to the big league clubs. So the, I wanted to, before the draft begins this week, get out a update and expansion to the recruiting rankings I initially put out uh, on signing day. So we, uh, we had that published last week. Texas remains number one in the recruiting rankings, just as they were on signing day. And, and Vanderbilt is, again, number two, just, just behind the horns. Uh, there have been some changes around them, though. And, you know, again, the, in addition to updating, I also expanded from 15 to 25 teams. So I would encourage you to uh, check that all out over at BaseballAmerica.com. I... Uh, I feel like it's a good guide uh, just to see where your team or teams in that you're interested in rival teams, whatever, uh, see where they're at as we go into the draft. Obviously the draft is going to change things uh, though less so than in a normal year. Uh, and so I'll update again once the kids get to campus in September. But for now, this is, this is where things stand going into the draft. I, I guess that's a decent place, in my curiosity, a decent place to start just as kind of a guide for, for fans who maybe are looking at these and using them as, as complementary material of the draft on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Are there any classes here that strike you as particularly sensitive from a draft standpoint? Because I think that's something we just inherently know in college baseball is that you want to recruit well, but if you recruit too well, you run the risk of, of the class kind of falling apart. And in a five-round draft, to your point, less so. But do any stand out in that regard as, as ones that really could change the complexion of the class depending on how the draft goes for them? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that there are some of those. Um, you know, you start with Texas, I guess, in this case, because Texas, you know, it, when we did our never-too-early top 25, Joe and I assumed that any college player – that ranked in the top 175 of the BA 500 would, would, would sign. And that was just an assumption. There are, there are players in there that won't, but that was just a a baseline. So on the high school side, I'd be very concerned about any player within the top 100. Once you get outside the top 100, uh, there still will be players that sign, but I think that you're going to see a little more, um, you know, those players are probably going to be a little tougher. So, Texas, though, has five top 100 players. And a lot of them, I think I could see going either way. 
you know, Jared Jones on signing day was the number one ranked high school player in the class. He slid a little bit since then, uh, still a projected first round pick, but what if Jared Jones, not Jared Jones, Jared Kelly, excuse me, Jared Jones, kind of similar though, uh, at one time was projected to be a first round pick, now is ranked 41st. So like if either one of those guys just slides a little bit or just had, you know, a vision of being a first round pick or being a top 10 pick, and that's really the goal that they wanted for themselves, maybe they say, well, I can go do, go to Texas for three years. We can compete. We can go to Omaha. Like I can experience those really cool things. And then in three years, I can go out and meet my goal of wherever I wanted to be drafted. So I think that the Texas class is kind of filled with guys like that, but also all of them at the top there remain draft risks. So I'm going to be very interested to see what happens to the Longhorns class. I think Vanderbilt has two top 20 players. Vanderbilt does have two top 20 players. And I think when you look at that Vanderbilt class, you almost have to just, you know, acknowledge that those two guys might sign. That's not why they're behind Texas. I I, I don't want to do that when I'm ranking classes, but if we're going to evaluate them as draft concerns, uh, you know, Vanderbilt might be losing its top two players, but there's incredible depth to the class. Uh, so, you know, kind of hard to know what that one's going to look like. You know, whereas Florida at number three is is just so much more depth than elite talent. Like they have the elite talent. Zach Veen is the the top ranked high school player in the in the draft right now and a potential top five pick. Uh, and, and so we, you know, you can presume Zach Veen is is going to move along, but you know, you look beyond that. Florida has eleven players in the the BA five hundred, the most of anyone, and so, you know, even once you subtract Veen, it, it's going to still be uh, a, a very loaded class. I guess the other one I would mention is Oklahoma. It's a little top heavy. They have, you know, three top one hundred players. Ed Howard is definitely in the mix in the first round. Uh, But then things get a little different there. You know, Dax Fulton was hurt this year, didn't pitch, had Tommy John surgery. Is he going to prefer to stay home? He's a, he's an Oklahoma kid. Is he going to prefer to stay home to, to, you know, come out of rehab? Would he rather just go into pro ball and, uh, you know, come out of rehab? Kind of an unknown. And then Cade Horton is in that class as well. Uh, he's committed to play football at Oklahoma in addition to the baseball. So how much does that football commitment keep him tied to Oklahoma versus maybe looking into pro ball? So all of those are, are interesting. There are some other classes that are definitely, um, you know, more draft dependent than others. Number 25 is Oregon State. Mick Abel is in that class right now. He's the top ranked high school pitcher just ahead of Jared Kelly. Uh, Mick Abel is going to be a first round pick on Wednesday. And what's he once that happens, if he signs, Oregon State's class is going to be viewed differently. But, you know, for now, we're looking at it and they have the best high school pitcher in the country. So it's pretty good. Um, you know, so all of this, all of these classes have draft risk. That's part of why they're top 25 classes. Uh, but yeah, you're right, Joe. Some of them have more than others. But again, you know, it, even in a normal year, you, you have some of these like, will they, won't they, um, you know, you see Kumar Rocker end up in, on campus, uh, somewhat of a surprise, but also 
you know, I could track before the draft how that, how he or some other pitcher in that class, there's just so much pitching in that class, how he and JT Ginn like ultimately come to the decisions they come to. Um, So those, those decisions exist in a normal year, but in a five round draft, it feels like they might exist um, or they might be magnified even more. Yeah. I've always said it. I think this is like the eternal debate in, in college baseball is, is the recruiting strategy vis-a-vis the, the draft. And, and I've always contended that it is just too hard to thread the needle to try to target as, as a, as a big picture goal, target the players who are just good enough to really play for you and be stars for you that aren't also good enough to draw interest from MLB, MLB scouts. I just think sometimes you're, you're going to have to take some swings and you're going to swing and miss, but you're also going to hit some homers. I, I just, for me personally, I, I think that approach for me is preferable to trying to, to hit a bunch of opposite field singles and, and try to, <laughs> to put your team together that way. And, and some, some programs approach recruiting a little more that way but out of necessity, and that's the way they, they build their programs. And it takes all kinds. But when you're recruiting at the top of the sport, like you're, you're just going to have to take some swings. And you mentioned Florida and Zach Veen, and he's as good as gone, obviously, but they seem to have done a pretty good job threading that needle and, and finding the players who are, who are going to be cornerstones of the program that aren't necessarily going to be drafted. And they were a team along with LSU that moved into your top five in this update of the recruiting rankings that were not previously in the top five. And I'm, I'm just curious, given, given how little we really have had transpire between then and now, what kind of precipitated the move for those two programs into the top five? So I would say a couple things happened. One is that Robert Moore enrolled early at Arkansas. And so Arkansas on signing day was ranked number three. So we take Robert Moore out of Arkansas's class. And obviously that downgrades it. Now we did not realize that Robert Moore was going to, you know, have the immediate impact that he was going to have. I think we probably would have had him ranked higher um, in the, the high school rankings back in November, if we had known that. Uh, but still, Robert Moore coming out of the class uh, at Arkansas, you know, knocked them back a little bit. We did see some games this spring around the country. And one of the places that we did see games from a high school standpoint was in Florida. And so I think that those, those guys down there had a chance to – um, start proving themselves a little more. And so you had a guy like a Sterling Thompson, who I honestly don't really know what position he's going to be. I guess he's been playing shortstop because he's in high school, but he's not going to be a shortstop at, at Florida. But what he does do is he hits. And he had been a guy that had been kind of like known about, but certainly wasn't a premium player. And now has edged into the top 200. And and so some of the Florida recruits were able to start taking a step forward and they end up with, they have 11 players on the BA 500. Again, that's, that's the most of anyone. And Zach Veen took a step forward as well. Um, So I think in in Florida's case, they, they had some guys take a step forward uh, and and they wind up with this, uh, this, this very deep talented class as a result and LSU kind of uh you know has has something of a similar story I think that they also you know so they benefited from like Drew Romo continuing to be Drew Romo 
uh, you know, one of the best catchers in the class. And they, uh, they also I, I tried not to like really take this into account too terribly much, but Dylan Cruz, who's one of the other great players in the class, an outfielder from Florida, he's pulled out of the draft now officially. So he's going to Baton Rouge next year. Uh, so that's kind of a significant thing. Ty Floyd probably took a step forward on the mound. Beck Way, who is a junior college transfer, definitely took a step forward. Um, you know, I was learning about him in the fall more than anything. Like I, you know, by November, I, I, I had learned about Beck Way, but he was not a name that over the summer I, I really knew much about had heard at all I don't think and and so he's now become the best junior college pitcher in the draft class so I think in both of those cases they they had some players take a step forward maybe that might be a little more true in uh in Florida's case and then also you know there was some movement the other way Arkansas fell back uh with with Robert Moore coming out and um you know some other players in, in other classes you know not necessarily falling, but just, you know, the ranking, the, 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 we get more information, our player rankings change, and then I have to respond to that. And, and so that's kind of how you end up with, uh, with, with Florida and LSU rising into the top five. And I, I think that Florida has a case to be number one. Obviously, I didn't do it, uh, but I, I think it's there. And I also wouldn't be surprised. You know, I mentioned that, you know, Texas and, and Vanderbilt both have some serious draft risks. Uh, and Florida's got a little bit less of that. So if Florida ended up number one in September, I, I wouldn't be, be surprised. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but they're definitely in contention for that. So like one of the things I find interesting about recruiting rankings that I always look for is, is where in these rankings do we see a team that maybe doesn't exactly fit kind of in a Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other kind of way. And the program that stands out to me actually historically would, would fit right in, but just hasn't had the success as of late is South Carolina at 12. And I'm curious kind of your thoughts on, you know, what kind of class it is. And if it's, I mean, of course the, the, the tough part about that is, you know, 12th also is sixth in the SEC. We, we've talked about that ad nauseum, just how hard it is to kind of claw your way up once you've fallen down in the SEC and South Carolina is looking to get back to a place where they're, hosting and challenging to get to Omaha, things like that. Is this class that type of class? I'm, I'm curious what you like most about that group of guys. It's going to be very interesting. South Carolina finished, I think, in this range last year with a very junior college heavy class. And, um, you know, we didn't really get to see what the, the results of that were. This year's class also has – you know, some heavy junior college talent. Their best player, uh, Luke Little, is a left-hander that you may have seen on Twitter touching 105 in a bullpen during the quarantine. Um, so that's pretty good. That, that's, uh, that's a big arm to, to lead up the class. He'll have to show that the improved control that he was starting to pitch with this spring is, um, you know, a lasting development, I guess I would say because that's been a real problem for him in the past. Uh, and also he, South Carolina just has to get him on campus still because uh, he is, you know, potential uh, to, to be picked. They, uh, they got a nice boost. Brandon Fields, um, who's an outfielder, was an, at one point committed to play both football and baseball. 
at South Carolina. He is not doing the football part of it anymore, and he officially removed himself from the draft. So he is coming to South Carolina officially and 100% committed to baseball, uh, which is exciting to get that kind of athlete in there. But they're going to need some someone in the last two classes. That, you know, These two joint freshman classes still haven't decided whether how we're going to refer to the, the 2019s going forward. Are they... Are they redshirt freshmen? Are they normal freshmen? Anyway, but in the 19 and 20 class, they're going to need some some real impact in 2021. Um, they're going to need it around the diamond, I would say, but definitely on the mound. And, and they've loaded up in, in that area. And there's a reason to believe that it will exist. Uh, but, you know, with some junior college transfers, you never know, like, you need them to be good right away, but sometimes they need a year to to settle in and to adjust to what they're what they're seeing and, and the level of competition and just get their feet under them because they're making a significant transition just like the freshmen are. Uh, so I, I think that if South Carolina can hit on some of these pitchers that they got in the last two classes from the junior college ranks, that is really going to help them a lot. But you know again they're they're playing in the SEC that everyone's recruiting well, everyone has talent. Uh, so they're they're going to need it to come um, to come quickly for them, I, I would say in, in, in 2021. Uh, but the, the talent is there and, and, you know, the Gamecocks, uh, you know, Mark Hinston continues to recruit well, like that, that hasn't gone away. It's just a matter of putting it all together on the field. And, you know, you would think that, that they will because they, they have what it takes. Uh, we just gotta, gotta see them take that, that next step now. And maybe they were going to do it this spring. We just didn't get the opportunity to, to see it happen. Yeah, it stood out to me a little bit that when Fields announced that, that he was coming to campus to, to focus on baseball, that it was essentially like the would be the best recruit on campus since, uh, you know, a Destino, which was like five, six years ago now. Um, and I forget where I, where I saw that, but I mean, it just kind of speaks to, um, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the South Carolina when you're, when you are recruiting against and playing against teams that are just recruiting at such a high level, playing at a high level year after year, it just, it takes so much effort to get back out of that. So it'll be interesting to see what, what this class does in that regard. One of the other places my, my eye goes here is the other USC and that's the uh, university of Southern California. First of all, first of all, Jaden Agassi is in this recruiting class, the son of Andre Agassi and Steffi Graff, as you noted in the, the write up there, um, no word on if he's going to wear a long hair wig, much like his father did during his tennis playing days. Um, also they have a shortstop named Alex Rodriguez, which I just think is kind of fun. I feel like we, Maybe did Kentucky have a shortstop named it Alex Rodriguez? Yeah, I don't know if he played shortstop. They definitely had an infielder. I kind of yeah, remember maybe he was maybe third a third baseman, baseman yeah. but that, they definitely had an A Rod. Yeah, so that that's kind of interesting there. But I think more than anything else is is you know we've seen this from USC in the past. I mean USC is a program that um, you know hasn't had a as a historical power has not had a ton of success as of late, even to a greater degree than South Carolina. And you know we've seen recruiting classes for USC get ranked. And then of course the draft has been part of that. I mean, they've, they've had some years where they've really gotten wrecked by the draft. Um, is this group different? I mean, how, how do you expect the sensitivity to draft from this group? And, and how do we know that, that this group is a little more real than some of the stuff maybe we've seen in the past with USC? Yeah. So they have, you know, you can go back and look like they had Eric Cosmer and Mike Mustak is committed to them. In, in the same class. And obviously that didn't work out for them because they never, they never saw those guys. And then 
they kind of, so like for a while that had been kind of USC's MO, just sign the best players you can find and who cares if they show up, some of them will show up, right? And well, the answer was no, they, they might not. And it did not, like that, that strategy didn't work. And so they've, they've retooled, they've been retooled for, I would say, at least five years. And they'll pop up in the rankings every now and again. It's not an annual thing, but it's a pretty close to annual thing. And they're always, I would say, and now it's a little different now. I did not, this is the first time I've ever done a recruiting rankings in June. And only the last two years or three years have I been ranking classes in November. Um, But from what I, like from their final rankings, like they generally are in the like 15, 17 to 30 range, 35. Um, so they're around where they generally are, I would say. So I don't know that this class is wholly different from a talent standpoint. Um, they have, you know, a really good up the middle player, DeAndre Smith, uh, Nate Clow. Those two guys could be the double play combination of the future. That would be very exciting if it works out. Two guys are really athletic, uh, can do a lot of things. Uh, they have Austin Wells' younger brother, Carson Wells. Carson's an outfielder. He's not the same player as his brother. His brother has the power. Carson has the speed. They both hit really well, though. And so that's a you – know, they have some nice, solid offensive pieces to this class, and then they have pitchers with upside – uh, including Jaden Agassi, who also has two-way talent, but probably is going to mostly focus on the mound uh, at USC. So it's going to be really incumbent upon Ted Silva, the USC pitching coach, to get the most out of these guys. One thing that might be different with them is that I think that this group is going to stick together uh, in terms of getting getting there. And I also think they have some guys that are floating a little under the radar, which is not common at USC. That's, that's not really the kinds of players they typically get, but they have a few guys that for one reason or another have floated a little under the radar. And honestly, I think Jaden Agassi is one of those. And you might be very surprised that the son of Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf can, can be under the radar, but I think he has been to an extent and, so it's possible that some of these guys are going to be ready to st- take a step forward when they get to, to campus, because that, that is one thing that really stands out about good recruiting classes, not so much top five recruiting classes. Those are generally players that have already, you know, become famous on some level. But I think some of these other classes really, you have to get guys who are under the radar, who are going to pop when, once you get them in there. And, you know, I think about like Alabama last year with Connor Prelip uh, and Tuan Jean, like those two guys became rotation pieces for the tide as freshmen and Prelip uh, statistically had the best pitching season of any freshman in the country, including Jack Leiter. Uh, that's a guy that wasn't on the 500. You can argue that he should have been, uh, but even if he had been, he wouldn't have ranked all that highly. And, and now he, he gets to, to to Tuscaloosa and he proves himself right away. And, and so I think that's what really helps classes shine in the, the second half of the rankings. And, and so I, I, I would be excited about that aspect of it, 
about the depth aspect of this class if I was a USC fan. I mean, it's one of the things that I, I think as, as frustrating as it, it must be for coaches and as frustrating as it is for fans that you can recruit your butt off and, you know, you, you have guys go to the draft left and right and, and what have you. But I think it's one of the things that, that makes it fun is just not knowing and then seeing it play out and then kind of being able to dream on these classes ended up getting to campus, especially if a group gets through the draft better than, than you would have expected, which of course is going to happen all the time this year, just given how, how unique it is. But but that, that's what has me, I guess, looking forward to this week. And I think what, what baseball, baseball recruiting has over something like football, where you, your class is your class is your class, barring, um, you know, things happening like, you know, players get, you know, dismissed out of the class or what have you. And um, once it's locked in, it's, it's, it's locked in for the most part. With baseball, it's just not that simple. And again, while I know that is stressful and probably a bug more than a feature when it comes to the, the coaches who put these classes together for – for folks like you and I who are observing it, it does make it kind of fun and it does give a speculative aspect to it that you just don't have in other sports and is, is one of the millions of reasons why it will be fun to follow along this week. Of course, chief among them is just that it's uh, much like the NFL draft was a nice respite back in April. This will be a nice bit of, of real tangible live sports things happening next week. And I would imagine that gets borne out with, the viewership numbers on MLB network and ESPN, just of people watching it because it's on and people are kind of starved for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would definitely say that, you know, I have definitely complained in the past about the draft being not the easiest thing to, to watch because MLB has never cleared its schedule fully from, from the draft there. It's come close, but they have yet to, you know, play or, or take a full day off of games. And, you know, so games are generally going to overshadow the draft in, in some respects, even when they mostly clear the decks, like there are still games. And, you know, there are college games oftentimes. Uh, and, and then MLB Network, if you're not, you know, if, if you're in a hotel, it's hard to find. A lot of cases you can't find it. Last year when I was uh, in Atlanta for regionals uh, during the draft, I'm fairly certain that I did not really watch the draft because I was, A, watching regionals and, like, on TV, both Athens and Atlanta wrapped up in, in time. But uh, my my hotel didn't have MLB network. So like it was on my computer or whatever, but like it was very clearly the second screen. And so this year we're not going to have to worry about that for a whole host of reasons, starting with the fact there is very little competition, but also because uh, don't get MLB network. Well, that's unfortunate. You won't get to see Carlos Colazo on the draft show, but you'd probably get ESPN. Um, and, and so it'll be interesting. They haven't televised the draft and, I think it's 15 years uh so that that's an interesting aspect of this as well and, and something that will be interesting to see if they continue it going forward as baseball generally has been trying to to make this more of a spectacle of course this year it was supposed to be in omaha um there's no guarantee there there was never a guarantee about the draft being in omaha past this year so now we really don't know about that but uh generally they've been moving to make it a bigger uh bigger show 
And, and so it's definitely going to be that this year, even without the Omaha aspect of it. And, and so we'll, we'll see going forward whether they, they look to return to Omaha uh, or not. But I, it being a bigger deal is definitely fun for us. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's got to be fun for the, the players as well who, who get to, you know, see uh, the, their dreams play out on television. Okay, so we are uh, gonna gonna wrap it here. I think we we've covered a lot of ground today, and obviously there's a lot of of ground uh, that, that we'll cover once the the draft is is in the books. But until then, I'd encourage you to check everything out over at baseballamerica.com and or in the magazine if you're a subscriber. Uh, lots of great preview content from the whole draft team led by Carlos Colazzo, uh, so you can get up to Get whatever you want, uh, scouting reports, mock drafts. It's all there. Uh, so, so check that out. And subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcasting app. Uh, we'll have more for you uh, throughout the week at, in, in terms of draft coverage, both in, in written form and, and I believe in, in audio form as well. So make sure you're subscribed and then that just goes straight to your phone and you don't have to worry about, did they publish an episode? What, what's the latest on that? It'll show up right, in the, right there in your phone. So subscribe, rate, review uh, if you can. I am uh, at Ted Cahill on Twitter. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. You can uh, follow us there. We'll, we'll be keeping abreast of all of the action uh, there as well. We will be back here on the Baseball America College podcast to talk more about it next week. Uh, we, uh, we may be back on Friday with our rewatch. Uh, still plans on that. TBD, another reason to be subscribed so you don't have to worry about this. Uh, but whenever we talk to you next, uh, we'll, we'll have plenty more info and college baseball coverage for you then. I want to thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Joe. I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll talk to you next time.